Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week, as almost every week at the moment, we are talking about Donald Trump. We're going to have a break from our special series about the big picture of dealing with Donald Trump to talk about the ban on refugees and the decision which Donald Trump made to restrict access to the United States for citizens of seven predominantly Muslim countries. This is something which many European Union countries are trying to work out how to deal with, whether it will affect their citizens, dual nationals who are also from those countries, and whether to deal with Donald Trump on their own or collectively. European heads of state and government will be meeting in the Maltese capital Valletta sometime uh, later on this week, on the 3rd of February, informally and formally on the 6th of February. And Donald Tusk has written to them, the President of the European Council, saying that he sees Trump as a threat to Europe, listing him alongside a number of other external threats, including radical Islam, an aggressive Russia, and an assertive China. So, to help us make sense of these things, we have our most regular Trump watcher, Jeremy Shapiro, the research director at ECFR, who has a hotline to Trump Tower and to the White House, and he'll he'll tell us about the the latest uh, developments, what the hell was going on to coin a Trumpism. Second up is Mattia Toaldo from our Middle East and North Africa program, and finally we also have Anthony Dworkin, another regular on the podcast, who is an expert on counterterrorism and international law. Both Mattia and uh, Anthony Dworkin are joining us down the line from Tunisia. So the uh, sound quality from them might be slightly less good, but they're also slightly closer to the action. I think they're hanging out at the ECFR MENA Forum with a lot of people who have been banned from entering the United States. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell us what the hell is going on? Uh, well, I can try. I mean, I think that uh, fundamentally, I don't know. It is what in the business we call a uh, clusterfuck. Um, the, uh, and I think I'm joined in not knowing what it is by um, most of the American public, by the American opposition, and intriguingly, in this instance, by the U.S. government, which clearly uh, has had a lot of difficulty figuring out exactly what this order means uh, and specifically how it would be implemented. And that's had implications, I think, uh, for for Europe because uh, the questions of whether um, uh, green card holders, the questions of whether dual nationals will be admitted uh, have gone sort of back and forth. There's been conflicting statements from the administration. Uh, there's been uh, assertions that the UK and that Canada and that the Five Eyes countries, the English-speaking countries, have a special deal. There's been at times assertions that the EU will get that deal. Uh, and I think it's all quite confused. And it goes to one of the central points of this ban so far, which has been that it's it's a demonstration that the Trump administration very much wants to break crockery, doesn't really know how to run a government, doesn't really pay a lot of attention to the ancillary effects of their policy. And yet when those things happen, they double down and they clearly have doubled down. Uh, and there's been a great deal of opposition to this in the United States. President Obama himself, he said, you know, the day before his 
he, he left office at his final press conference. He said, I won't speak up unless the ideals of America are threatened. Uh, and he spoke up yesterday. So the way I like to do this discussion is to come at it from three angles. Firstly, looking at how Europe is affected and what Europeans can do about it. And then to think about some of the the big policy implications, both for the war against terror, which uh, was allegedly one of the motivations for this ban, and then also for the whole idea of of managing refugees and for the international legal system around that. Um, Mattia, maybe you could go first and, and tell us a bit about what you think the the implications are for for Europe and uh, and what we know of the European response so far. So the European response has been, apart from the UK, quite critical of uh, uh, Trump's actions. The UK has tried initially not to give it a bad reaction and then uh, basically cut a separate deal with the US to exclude uh, British citizens uh, from the ban. What it could be, the the European reaction, well, we'll see on Friday and then on Monday. Uh, Of course, uh, you will have some EU member states uh, like the Czech Republic, which have praised uh, the, the ban, uh, but most other countries are opposed to it. Now, the real question is whether this ban applies also to European dual citizens, even in the case in which they're entering the US with uh, a European EU passport. So the issue there is whether the US is, of course, entitled to decide who enters its territory, But when it says, basically, your EU passport, we disregard it and we act as if it doesn't exist. And what we actually care about is your other nationality and your place of birth, as it happened with with some people. Well, it's a clear challenge to to having neighborly relations. So the question is whether the EU can step up its response from a declaratory uh, position to one in which uh, Europe uh, at least provides concrete consular assistance in U.S. airports uh, to EU passport holders who happen to have some relationship with one of these uh, seven countries, Uh, whether the EU uh, negotiates together jointly uh, the exclusion of uh, EU citizens uh, from this ban. These are the first line of reaction. Then, of course, there are more uh, broader uh, considerations to make on whether uh, this ban deals a lethal blow to the international uh, system that manages uh, refugee relocation but we'll discuss that later so we'll we'll go on to that but but let's dwell a bit more on on what europeans can do so one thing we should do is the opposite of what the british government did which is to hang together that we we think that people were more likely to get uh reasonable hearing from the white house if they go in as one rather than all trying to to kind of negotiate side deals for themselves it's not clear yet whether the british side deal is really a side deal anyway or whether this applies to the whole of the eu or to the the anglosphere um yet and the other one your your other idea was the idea of um uh having some kind of rule of law mission to the to the us where we could get uh, people, Europeans in airports may be giving legal advice and helping people who get trapped. That, those kind of seem to make sense. Is there anything else that one, that Europeans should do, Jeremy or, or Anthony, either to help make Trump reconsider this move to help European citizens or to to deal with the real root cause of what he's trying to do, which is to, to help uh, fight 
the war on terror and stop people come to the United States and um, plan terrorist actions there. I think it's difficult to come up with a lot of other things to do because the problem is that this this ban isn't just cruel, it's also stupid. Um, and the, the, the problem that Europeans have in trying to address the problem that Trump is flagging, which is uh, that these citizens are dangerous, uh, that these citizens of these countries are dangerous to, US, uh, to the United States if they come, that they might commit terrorist acts, is a difficult problem to solve because it doesn't exist. Uh, and in fact, there have been a total uh, in the last 10 years of zero deaths uh, ca caused in the United States by citizens from these seven countries. Uh, and so what, what that means is that this isn't a ban that is aimed at actually keeping America secure. Uh, at least maybe, maybe it is, but if so, it's uh, they have no idea what they're doing. I think more likely it is a ban aimed at, um, at saying to, the, uh, to Trump's voters that he is willing to um, go to extreme measures to keep them safe, to, uh, to feed the narrative that there is a terrorist threat that he's preventing. And it, let's face it, it sets him up for success because there were zero terrorist attacks before the, before the ban, and I assume there'll be zero after. It's not very often that I get to quote uh, Kim Kardashian tweet on this podcast, so I'm going to jump in and take full advantage of that before going to Anthony and asking him what he says. But Kim Kardashian put out a tweet as the ban was being announced with a, an incredible table, which says that the number of Americans killed annually by uh, Islamic jihadist immigrants, which is um, uh, two far right wing terrorists, five all Islamic jihadist terrorists, including US citizens, nine um, armed toddlers, 21. Lightning, 31. Lawnmowers, 69. Being hit by a bus, 264. Falling out of bed, 737. And being shot by another American is 11,737. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should forbid the entry of buses into the US. Yeah, and everybody should sleep on the floor. Yeah, beds are really dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, now we've got some positive proposals here. <laughs> I um, think these armed toddlers is what I'm most worried about. But anyway, <laughs> Anthony. Um, well, those can be some pretty, uh, you know, resonant personal tragedies when they happen. Um, but I think, you know, I'm in a position of agreeing both with uh, Kim Kardashian and with Jeremy. You know, I think this, um, this measure is designed to deliver on a a promise that Trump made in his campaign that was, you know, proved to be extremely, extremely popular and resonant, um, even if it was based on um, a, a kind of illusory notion of where the threat's coming from. And as people have pointed out, you know, even those small number of terrorist attacks that were carried out by immigrants, they were coming from countries that aren't on this list at all. Um, so, you know, clearly it's a kind of, it's a piece of political symbolism. Um, and I think this does pose a problem for Europe, though, because, of course, I think it's right and important that European countries should respond, um, should offer all the assistance that they can, and should point out that this is both contrary to fundamental values and a stupid thing to do. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's going to be difficult for statements from Europeans, particularly ones that are phrased in terms of universal values, 
um, to have that much of an effect on Trump's followers. And in some ways, this could provide grist to his mill um, for him to claim that, you know, international bien pensant opinion doesn't like what we're doing, but I'm going to put the interests of America first. Um, which leads me on, though, to, you know, one consideration that I think, um, you know, can be raised and should be raised both by outsiders and within the United States. And, you know, I think we can go further than saying that this is a, a pointless and ineffective gesture. I think there's very strong reason to think that it's going to be counterproductive in terms of um, the very thing that it's supposed to be doing, which is reducing the terrorist threat to Americans. And I think that there are two good reasons for that. Um, one of which is a kind of a more practical one. You know, if you look at the countries that are on the list, a lot of these countries are precisely the countries where Americans are involved in or supporting military action against ISIS or against other terrorist groups. Um, and those military actions rely very closely on cooperation with armed forces on the ground, local forces and local governments. Um, you know, for instance, to take only one example, the Iraqi government is put in an extremely awkward position by this move. The Iraqi parliament has already voted for reciprocal measures against Americans, uh, which would put the American contractors who are involved in the, the anti-ISIS fight into a rather difficult position. Um, now, the, the Iraqi government probably won't act on that because it needs Americans in the country for its own security. Um, but clearly, it's undermining the position of the Iraqi prime minister to make him have to support the, you know, the, the coalition forces against the will of his own population. So that's one um, point. But um, a broader point, I think, is simply that it's been a consistent theme um, that the United States and its allies have tried to stress again and again that our military action in these countries is against a particular set um, of you know, violent extremists, terrorists, um, that we don't see them as representative of Islam more generally or of these countries more generally. And at a stroke, I think um, President Trump is really undermining that by simply lumping all the citizens of these countries together um, and saying they all pose a danger to the United States and have to be kept out. So you only have to go on to social media for a short time, and it's very easy to see um, what kind of mileage um, the Islamic State and other jihadist groups are, are making out of, these, um, out of this move that President Trump has made. Um, you know, it's being gleefully retweeted um, and circulated as precisely showing that for all the talk um, and rhetoric coming out of the West, the United States is actually at war with Islam, with um, Muslim countries altogether. Uh, and that's, you know, is really going to undermine a central part of the um, public message that all of our countries have been trying to put across as a key part of, of our efforts against terrorist recruitment. Um, and in that sense, it's very dangerous and misguided. Right. So you talked a bit about what Europeans can do, a bit about the effect on the war on terror. 
The other important angle is the whole framework of international law and what happens to the refugee management system. Does this make the situation much worse for, for Europeans? Mattia, maybe you can um, lead us into that. I think, yes, it does. Uh, the US executive order basically bans indefinitely Syrian refugees from the US. Now, one should bear in mind that Unlike Europe, the U.S. under the Obama administration had a very tight vetting program, which only let uh, Syrians... How many actually went in under Obama? Well, not many. Uh, For many years, we were counting Syrian refugees in the few thousands. Uh, Compare that with the one million that Germany uh, got in. And at the moment, there are between 20 and 60,000 Syrian refugees who had completed the vetting, which takes about 18 months, and are trapped into the system in which they would theoretically now have earned the right to go to the US, but are banned indefinitely from arriving into the US. Now, the problem with Europe And they are, these refugees are in refugee camps in, where are they? Well, they are mostly in refugee camps in the region, Uh, or in other cases, they're not in refugee camps, they're in, in private accommodation. Um, now, the, the, the problem for the Europeans is uh, twofold. The first one is that for Europe to deal with the refugee crisis, one of the main points was to internationalize it. So to ask for a worldwide redistribution of the burden. Now, if the U.S. decides to pull out, then you're taking away a big chunk of this part of the solution. The second problem is that it's only 60,000, but is your worry that other people might copy the US? Exactly. That's that's the other problem. And these other people might be in Europe or coincidentally in some populist parties in Europe who will say, you see, the US managed to completely shut down its borders to refugees. Why can't we do that? Well, there are plenty of Europeans who, who got in there first, though, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the, none of them has implemented the, the kind of blanket, complete ban that the U.S. has made. Uh, it, it was more subtle, let's say. Uh, and also there were some European countries where, to be fair, uh, Euro- uh, refugees didn't want to go in the first place. Uh, so there was a lot of noise uh, for nothing. But yes, if we look at the French election, if we look at the Dutch elections, if we look at the German elections, you will see that populist parties there will have a lot more ammunition uh, to shoot than they would have had just a week ago, just because the the U.S. has uh, damaged the international system on that side. And Anthony, are there like elements of international law which are being kind of permanently assaulted here, which you think Europeans should draw red lines around? Well, it's said that um, when Chancellor Merkel of Germany had a phone call with Donald Trump, she took the opportunity to uh, give him a, a, a basic primer on the Geneva Refugee Convention. And, you know, of course, it is a principle of international law that um, refugees who are arriving in your country who are at risk of harm can't be sent back to the countries they came from. Um, and of there, you know, the initial understanding of the order as it came out of the White House was that people were going to be put on planes and sent back. Um, but in a lot of cases, that's actually been stopped by the American courts. 
And this is part of the kind of rather confused picture that Jeremy was painting at the beginning. You know, you've got this patchwork of legal rulings, um, patchwork of people and customs and immigration departments around the United States desperately trying to make sense of this order. Um, and, you know, in some cases acting in ways that are being found to be illegal. So I think, you know, we don't actually know what's going to remain once this has gone through the, the accelerated process of legal examination. Um, and in some respects, probably it'll be altered. But I think the fundamental message is pretty clear that it's, um, you know, as, uh, as Donald Trump said, it's America first. Um, and uh, the safety and well-being of these other people is, uh, is not the primary consideration. I think it needs to be said also that for better or for worse, there really isn't, there really aren't a lot of requirements on any country in international law in terms of their immigration system. The, Anthony mentioned the big one, which is that you can't turn away refugees. But in fact, beyond that, um, countries are, are, are very much free to, uh, to take in or not take in whoever they want. Um, and to, and uh, they are also very free at the border to conduct really any kind of uh, any kind of search or any kind of vetting process that they want in order to determine who to admit, and if they, if somebody refuses to undergo that, they can just be sent away. And so, actually, there the and this is actually true in American law more or less, and very much true in international law. So it's so there aren't a lot of requirements here, and I think that 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 gets at the point that uh, that. A lot of this system has depended to a, to a fair amount on the goodwill of the various countries involved and on their domestic politics, not on any sort of international legal structure. The refugees are a bit of an exception, but other than that, the immigration system is very, it doesn't have much international legal implications. And so if, as countries become meaner on this, there isn't a lot of legal breaks on what they might do. So what can, maybe to, to end the discussion, we can just have one more go at thinking about what Europeans could do. Because there's like lots of symbolic things which people are talking about. In the UK here, people were a little upset uh, initially at Theresa May's reluctance to condemn the visa ban. But that's uh, spawned a, a lot of outrage about the idea of a... Uh, a state visit to the UK and people are kind of talking about that, uh, whether there should be a state visit. Um, are there other kind of things that uh, are on the cards at the moment, Jeremy? Um, I, I think it's hard to, it's hard to see there being very much of that. Um, there, there clearly isn't a lot of appetite uh, in Europe to, uh, to respond uh, very negatively uh, to this, I mean, there's a, there's obviously a lot of appetite within the the civil society, but in terms of the governments, uh, I mean, Tusk's statement was very interesting, but I don't really see many people following their lead. I think everybody is still in the mindset that um, you know it's only ten days into the Trump administration, we need to you know maintain our links and try to and try to alter the behavior and try to uh, reach accords with him, and that's why I think everybody has been reaching out. Uh, in the in the reaction to this ban and trying to say and trying to sort of talk him down, uh, my own view is that that's not going to work and that there need to be and and that harsher measures will need to be considered. But it doesn't really seem like the European governments are ready for that. What do you two think? 
Well, in a way, it's interesting because it seems that May is under the same delusion that Blair was under the, the Iraq war. If I'm under the tent, I can condition those under the tent. If I'm outside of the tent, I lose any leverage. And we know now how much leverage he had at the time with a much different, much more rational uh, administration. So it's true that it's very early in the administration. And of course, in many European capitals, a lot of people are reluctant to ruin the relation uh, with the new administration just 10 days into the administration. Uh, but there, there will come a time, maybe very soon, uh, in which uh, you know, preserving Europe will be at odds with preserving uh, normal relations with the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, essentially what Jeremy and Mattia are saying is that um, there are some big choices coming up for Europe. Um, they're unlikely to be able to sway Trump um, through the use of influence. And, you know, assuming he carries on in this way, there's going to be a, you know, a bigger question, which is, one, do we have any kind of leverage to sway him in any other way, um, it remains to be seen whether there is enough or whether it can be uh, mobilized in any kind of unified way. And then beyond that, and I think more importantly, is a question of whether Europe really has to kind of envisage its orientation in the world over the next four years in a way that has a fundamentally different stance vis-a-vis -vis the United States than it's had for several decades. Um, but that's a, that's a difficult thing to, to rush into in 10 days. So uh, I think they'll have to work towards that one. Yeah, well, I, I, I suspect that uh, this will be an evolving story and that we're going to return to it many, many times, not least in some of the, these special podcasts we're doing on the big picture of what Trump means for, for, for European foreign policy. And I think um, uh, we still have to delve into some of these bigger questions both about some of the other regions we haven't talked about yet such as Asia which is going to be quite a complicated one um, as well as the domestic political implications of what's going on some of which we touched on now and uh, an even bigger picture discussion about the crumbling of the, the liberal world order. So thanks again for helping us make sense of the first round of the refugee ban story which i'm sure is going to escalate and where many things are happening all the time in the in the us not least within the legal system uh, we have one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment anthony what's on your bookshelf at the moment um well i've got an article that um has been attracting quite a lot of attention and i think it's uh, um worth a look for europeans who want to have an insight into the roots of Trump's support in the United States. It's by the American uh, political analyst Walter Russell Mead, um, and it's appeared recently in the, on Foreign Policy website, and it's called The, the Jacksonian Revolt. Um, and essentially, it's, it's drawing on a, a larger book that he wrote some time ago about tracing different strands in American foreign policy. Um, but it's a very good, uh, succinct analysis, I think, of the kind of um, intellectual, cultural and social background behind Trump's support. And it shows that this is quite a, a deep rooted strain in the United States, which uh, we need to understand um, uh, if we're going to respond to it effectively. Great. What about you, Mattia? 
I'm reading Sapiens, A History of Mankind, and wondering, <laughs> you know, where we're heading. It's an interesting book because it, it, its thesis is basically that the difference uh, between mankind and other animal species and what allowed uh, human beings to build big societies is the capacity to build narratives and to work on abstract ideas. So something that it's quite helpful in understanding where Europe's future is heading towards. Great. What about you, Jeremy? Well, I'm uh, mostly these days I'm just reading about uh, Trump's latest outrage. But um, what I'm hoping to read in the very near future is a book which I think is going to be a very important book uh, for 2017. I think it's not quite out yet. I think it's coming out in uh, April. Uh, And it's called uh, The Death of Expertise by Tom Nichols. And it's about um, the end of, uh, you know, my profession. Uh, the campaign against established mo- ma- no- the campaign against established knowledge and why it matters, and basically it looks at the forces in uh, in Western societies uh, that are trying to undermine the authority of experts and tries to understand where this anti-expertise sentiment came from uh, and where it's going, and it it traces a lot of it, of course, to technology. Um, but also tries to look at the the consequences of the death of expertise, um, and and points out that without expertise, you are sort of unmoored, and everything uh, and and every action is just um, is just imbued in politics and um, in narrative, and then you end up, I would argue, with things like Trump's visa ban. So I bring us back. So I was going to mention some of the zillions of articles that I've read about Trump over the period ahead, including things about the big picture, the decline of the liberal order, the little picture and how he was elected and things like that. But actually, um, the most exciting thing I've done recently um, was not a book. It was a it was an exhibition at the Design Museum in London um, called Fear and Love. And uh, reactions to a complex world and it's uh, an incredible uh, series of 11 installations by some of the most innovative and thought-provoking designers and architects around today but it covered a lot of the themes that we were talking about some of the highlights for me were the um, there was an incredible one about uh, Grinder, the the gay dating app which um, showed how Syrian refugees used it to get from their home country um, across different borders through dinghies to 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 greek refugee camps ending up being uh, housed in 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 the netherlands uh, but it's a it's a really important way of thinking about the connected world and the different communities there and another really fun one was by uh, oma a friend of mine rem Coolhouse, who uh, has been involved with ecfr as well um uh designed a pan-european living room where they have uh, furniture from all 28 countries but it's a sort of reflection on post-brexit europe but the basic idea uh behind those and other weird things like death masks 21st century death masks which um keep the smells of people alive is to kind of and robots as well is to engage with the things which uh which are kind of scaring and exciting people at the moment uh in different ways it's a very very thought-provoking uh, collection of things so that brings this uh, podcast to an end. If you have enjoyed it, please do immediately head to iTunes, give us a review and a rating because it will allow other people to 
follow you down this path of discovery and find better ways for Europeans to come together and to make sense and act in this crazy world that we're in. Um, other ways of telling people about it, obviously, involve your social media activities on Facebook, on your own pages, on ECFR's uh, Facebook page, on Twitter. Um, and if you're enjoying this podcast, also feel free to send us suggestions on how we can do it better, different topics that we can address. My email address is mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. There are references to all of the publications that we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Anthony Dworkin and Mattia Toaldo in Tunis and Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, in London, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Pauline Goemin. Mm-hmm.